Good evening. So just to say again, my name is Gavin. I'm the literary manager with Fish Amble. Uh, there we go. To my left, uh, Deirdre Kinhunt, a playwright here. And over the left again is Senator Ivana Bacic, who is professor in criminal law, the Reed professor, I think, uh, in criminal law in Trinity College, Dublin. Actually, Ivana, I'm going to leap straight on you because uh, Ivana and I were in Trinity in the same time in the late 80s. And, you know, I'd like to give you a chance to respond to the play itself. But I'd like to ask you about recognition, those times, that kind of environment. Did, did that bring back for you any sense of, yeah, I'm starting to think, rethink about that, that period of time again? Um, yes, absolutely, it did. And, of course, you've aged us both now, Gavin, by referring to the late 80s. Um, it was actually mid-80s, but I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I backed I noticed, off. I noticed that, too. I know. Um, but it was the early 90s by the time I left college. Okay, so sorry. I think, I think that's a bit better. Um, well, yes, I thought it was a very powerful play, and I just want to say that. I thought it was brilliant, brilliantly done. Harrowing, but brilliant. And uh, certainly did bring me back to Rathmines Road and all those sure, parties. Yeah. And... Uh, and, you know, but obviously it's very thought-provoking in, in loads of ways, especially now, you know, in a very different era after the Me Too movement when there's so much more discussion and so much more, I hope, awareness on campuses and elsewhere of, uh, the you know, the issues around consent. I'm just thinking now in Trinity, the Students' Union has been running consent workshops. There's a heightened awareness. There's, I have to say, I'm delighted, a resurgence in feminism. I mean, I see that among students now, a real... Um, a real uh, you know, enthusiastic claiming of the label of feminist, particularly around repeal the eighth movement and so on, but also around women's empowerment. But on so that's all very positive. But on the negative side, I'm just thinking about things like Brett Kavanaugh, of course. Um, I don't even want to mention the T word, the Trump. Um, but uh, all, but also closer to home, the Belfast rape trial and all the issues that brought up for people. So, uh, so I think you know, there's still a great deal of work to be done on mm -hmm. consent issues and on. And on, I suppose, on different gendered perspectives of sexuality, which was really, without we could that's a lot of jargon, but that was really what, what seemed to me the message underlying that play was just how differently men and women were seeing, um, were seeing sex and seeing what you know clearly for him was just this not very memorable night, and for her had been so had such a profoundly devastating impact upon her. So, uh, so I think it was really interesting, and I think there's still a long way to go before we can really address that. Yeah, uh, and I'm going to um, come back to Ivana in a moment and uh, pick your legal brain, actually, if, if you don't mind. Um, and also just to say, uh, after a few questions up here, we'll be open up to the audience. So if people like to think ahead for things they'd like to know about, please, please do. Um, Deirdre, um, it, we obviously you're extremely um, successfully produced uh, Playwright, I'm pleased to say worldwide at the most. New children's play out, I noticed as well. I know. Uh, yeah, so I'm delighted. I hope it's not too traumatic for the, uh, the young people. Um, but um, um, with regard to Fishamble, uh, of course, we worked together in Tiny Place for Ireland, Broken, and that in a way led, there was a flow then into spinning three years ago, 2015, which we did at the Dublin Theatre Festival. And that, I mean, there's been a flow from there to here. So that's a three year period. And I know that we worked and the play has developed over those three years. I just wonder now you've got a chance to reflect. Um, Slightly tricky question. Do you feel there's a core that you hung on to? Is, 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 in the sense that there's an idea, and here we are tonight, it's on the stage. What, and I know it moved a lot over as we developed it, so what, what do you feel were the core issues that you held on to uh, through all the drafting? I think the, kind of the core issue for me was trauma and how trauma deeply affects somebody. 
And I suppose initially when I started writing it, I was thinking very much in terms of how people hold on to things, hold on to great trauma for a period of time. Yet there is at times this great compulsion just to release it. And I suppose in Ireland we've had a lot of that recently, you know, with, um, you know, kind of the Magdalene Laundries, institutional abuse, um, just a real kind of reckoning, a real look at ourselves, you know, on, on a big picture. And then there were other very kind of high profile cases like the Cosby case and the uh, Jimmy Savile case, and you know, that these people coming forward 25, 30 years later. So that was what I initially started with. And then for me, a play happens when you get in there, when you get into that room, when you create the characters, when you start to walk around in it. And I began to realize that there's a lot of things that conspire towards <laughs> silence. And that convention, social convention, gender convention is a big part of that. And I think it was when I, it was in there that I began to realize this is a play about reinvention. It's a play about how people rebuild themselves, reinvent themselves after trauma. And then at one level, you can look at a transgender person and think that's the ultimate reinvention. But actually, that person is working the other way, right towards their own truth. So then I began to think a lot about truth, and I began to think about story and about narrative, and how we all change narrative and change story to suit ourselves or our own needs. And the more testimonies I read, the more people I spoke to who had been affected by rape or sexual assault, the more I realized that their story gets taken from them and it gets turned and twisted and retold. And in a, in a way, they're kind of silenced all over again. And to me, like, that's deeply tragic. And like in this play, the fact that Sandra makes the decision not to confront her violator, her rapist, is evidence of just how difficult it is and just how extraordinarily brave people are to come forward because everything, every impulse in us wants to stuff that story back down into the sofa because it's too difficult for us to bear and too many people are going to be affected by it. And that's what I think we've seen play out in the Belfast rape trial, in the Christine Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh. It's the fact that Everybody seems to want to just shut it up, shut it down, close it down. So I think I held on to that throughout. And I think I learned a great deal about gender and gender convention as I was writing it. Sure. And if I, if I, I mean, that goes nicely into maybe coming back to Ivana for a moment. Um, and it, the questions I'm going to ask are, in a sense, framed towards your thinking of where Ireland might be in a, in a better place in terms of legislation or in terms of the law. But for the moment, there's a lot of parallel cases to this. And it, it, it was given as what a coincidence that this happened at the same time as this other thing happened. And then he starts to realize, no, it's not a coincidence. That it, you know, th there's a lot of cases um, and a lot of history um, in this area, sadly. Just for the moment, just really kind of literally, given that play itself, if Sandra went to the guards, the character Sandra, and said, I'd like to report a rape, what would actually happen in real life at this stage in Ireland right now? Okay, well, uh, <laughs> um, thanks for the question, Kevin. Um, I should say I practiced as a barrister for many years in criminal law, and uh, 
the reality, I think, is she would, if she went to the guards, if Sandra went to the guards and reported the rape that, um, that it was in the play, they would take a statement painstakingly, in, um, manually, in, in longhand, and they would then send it up to the director of public prosecutions for who would advise. And I think the, re the likelihood is that while um, while they can, of course, then just go and seek out witnesses, they can go and interview the suspect and so on and decide if there's a case. I think in, in, a, in a case like that, it's unlikely a prosecution would be taken because I think the distance of time and the lack of evidence... Is there a statute of limitations on, on No, this? there's no statute of limitations on serious sexual crime or in any other serious crime. Um, and one would hope that the guards and the DPP would take it seriously enough to investigate by... Uh, talking to witnesses, but there is also a, a test, a hurdle that has to be overcome where they have to advise whether or not it's likely to result in a conviction. I was, and I'm, I appreciate I'm speculating a little, but I was from admiring for a moment the, the Scottish tradition of not proven. Is that uh, a legal avenue that Ireland could go down, or is it is, is, is such an unusual thing in Scotland to be able to say that something was not proven? No, it's not here. I mean, if the, if the prosecution were to proceed, of course, then... Um, then you know, uh, Eddie would be prosecuted, he'd be brought before court. Uh, Sandra would be a witness for the prosecution, the complainant, but she doesn't, she doesn't run the trial, so the prosecution take over the trial. And that's why, you know, we've, we've done a lot of research on rape trial processes here and in other countries. And uh, here, you know, the victims, the complainants feel very much like it's a secondary victimization being in, being in a rape trial. That's the unfortunate findings uh, and, uh, from interviewing women who've gone through it uh, because, because it's so difficult, because you don't have control of the process, because often there's very little information, uh, because you have no legal representation. The prosecution team are acting for the state in prosecuting and the complainant is just a witness. So it can be very, very difficult and we have tried to bring in some reforms to make things, to improve the conduct of trials for complainants. And what, and what would those reforms be? So, for example, following from research, we did a report we published in the late 90s. There is now provision for separate legal representation for rape victims in trials where the defence tries to bring in evidence of prior sexual history, particularly invidious form of evidence in rape trials. And again, there's a lot of feminist literature about why are rape trials so difficult to prosecute, why are rape convictions so difficult to obtain compared to other crimes? And the answer being a lot of very specific rules of evidence that apply in rape trials, deriving from myths, really, myths about men and women and sexual conduct and a fundamental distrust of women. So one can get very very depressed reading about all this and can only really admire the immense bravery of those complainants who do come forward. But I, do say, but I will say there are improvements and one of them is this separate legal representation. So we now have in Irish law, and it is a unique uh, uh, provision that you have a barrister in court if the defence tries to bring in evidence that you had sex with somebody else or with him before. It's again a unique feature of rape trials that that evidence can be brought in doesn't happen in other remember, types of events. I, I believe you wrote an article recently talking about the difference between UK law and the trial in Northern Ireland yes. and Irish law. Is there a difference in the, also about naming people involved in trials in Ireland? Yes, again, in Irish tri rape trial, the, you know, I wrote a piece after the Belfast rape trial, I suppose to reassure people, because we, all of us working in, in this area, people in the Rape Crisis Centre and so on, were so concerned that the reports of the trial and the ultimate acquittal would really put women off 
reporting rape and sexual assault because they would think this is it's so difficult to go through something like that so uh, one of the things that was important to say was in Ireland our processes are different there's anonymity for both the complainant and for the accused so the names aren't published and the public are not allowed in the courtroom our trials are conducted in camera so that's in other words in, in private so that's hugely important because I think part of what made the Belfast trial so difficult and so traumatic was that uh, these the men were uh, so well known and so much the subject of a media circus and because members of the public were in the case and could see and identify the victim whose name then became apparently very widely disclosed on social media. Yes, and, and, but, and yes, and yes, Deirdre, this play is set in Glen Ely, uh, spinning uh, with Tremor, I think, yourself, your original career began in uh, Navan, no? Yeah, well, I'm originally from Dublin, but uh, I've been living in Meath for 20 years now, yeah. yeah. And you have a an ear for small town Ireland, if that's the right phrase, and th that feeling that things are never secret. So in other words, that once this was gone to trial with the best men in the world and this kind of legal protection, you know, th that this is going to become round the town. Is that your feeling about things or is that just, you know, me projecting? I suppose, um, I suppose I'm always really interested in uh, secrets and silence and how they kind of control our lives. And I think secrets are very poisonous things. And I think because of our history, and our society and our culture, and because we have lived in very kind of small communities, that uh, secrecy and silence and respectability and these things were kind of used as weapons against us. So I think in theater, what you're trying to do is both reflect and highlight a truth and challenge it, you know? And I'd be acutely aware of um, the whole push from the Rape Crisis Center, from feminism, from all of us, to encourage and embrace uh, uh, the decision of people to go forward, because unless that happens, nothing's ever going to change. But I think at the same time, we've got to reflect the truth that less than a third, I think, are the statistics. Much, much less. I mean, the only way, it's very hard to grapple with statistics because they shift and change and people use them in different ways and there's been very few recent surveys. But I know one figure that really stuck with me and it was on the Dublin Rape Crisis uh, website was that I think it was, the figures were 296 uh, people had engaged with services and of the 296, 84 had gone forward and um, you know contacted authorities, and then of the 84, the D, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre knew the result of 36, and of the 36, three had gone to prosecution. So you're going 296 to three. You know, I mean, they are stark, stark statistics. And I suppose that's the kind of thing that I wanted to try and highlight. And then you just get nauseated by the continued, you know, well, if it was true, she would have reported it. Why didn't she report it? Why didn't she go to the police? Why didn't she that? If any of us give five minutes of our time, we can see a myriad of reasons as to why women and men don't step forward in these situations. So, uh, and that's why I think the creative process is something different because I think what you can do in theater is you can move outside 
the realm of statistics and you can move outside the realm of, you know, kind of blame or, you know, great national cases and you can get inside the shoes and socks of everybody in that room and you can see how they're all deeply affected by it and therefore you can show the complexity of reasons as to why people behave the way they do. And for me, that's, one of that, that's why I write plays because there's always a story under, underneath there's always a myriad of reasons, and we can all key in and relate to them if we want to, you know? And I suppose it's about creating that empathy. Did I answer the question? I don't know where I went, Gavin. Yep, certainly <laughs> did. Certainly, actually, well, and can I, if I, um, it sort of links, bring you back to the character of Dani, because you talk about gender, and I guess gender and power. Um, if I hear you right, but I was, what I suppose I see in Dani is, that someone who has been through an experience where society doesn't want to know about it, that has been, some hints from her, some deeply unpleasant things that she, I think she says at one point, people cover up a lot of shit or people swallow a lot of shit and you think she's talking about herself there, that, that kind of thing, that she represents someone who has held on to truth and she has a few lines toward the end. Is that, to your mind, is that something that she is bringing to the, this play? Absolutely. I mean, Darnie was, was quite a journey. I mean, because I, I started writing this play in uh, early 2015. And at that time, we were in the lead up to the same-sex marriage referendum. So suddenly there were all these kind of invisible people or silenced voices finding their way, uh, you know, onto our television screens, into our newspaper columns, onto our radios. And the transgender experience was one of them. I mean, I'm not transgender. There's nobody fa in my family transgender. But I just found it a fascinating experience and one I realized I knew nothing about. So the character of Darnie, when I was trying to build Sandra and trying to build her life, and I imagined that there was a friend there who maybe could or could not um, you know, act as a witness for her. The idea of Darnie began to come into my head. And a lot of people actually warned me off it because it's such a political, you know, conundrum and you've got to get a trans actor and this, that and the other. But Darnie wasn't going anywhere. She'd walked into my head and I thought, Darnie's in our world, so she's going to be in this play. But I realized that I knew nothing about it. So I went and I spoke to a wonderful woman called uh, Linda Sheridan. And Linda told me her story. And a lot of what I've given Darnie in this play, The Guardian Angel, that, that's Linda's story. You know, she married her guardian angel, lived with her as a man, had three children. Then when her guardian angel died, she transitioned and she became Linda. And it was the most beautiful story. And there was lots of things that she told me that I began to remember. She told me she used to go to a club on Georgia Street. And uh, I think it was called the Gemini Club. And that there were groups of men who at that time, they weren't transitioning, it wasn't available. But they used to dress up and go out in groups. And they had to go out in groups because it was so dangerous if they went out on their own. And I began to remember, you know, a group of men dressed as women in Bewley's late at night. And I remember looking at them and never understanding or never going underneath the rouge or the high heels and trying to understand what was that compulsion, what, what was under that. So I think riding Darnie was a real experience for me to get to know that experience. And I really felt that that allowed me to open this play up then to have that big, kind of conversation where Linda Levins turns on her, 
you know, misdirecting all her anger and says, you know, the dick is gone, give me your heels, and then goes for it, do you know? And she has this kind of diatribe about the casual sexism and harassment that she's experienced all her life, that most women in Ireland have experienced all their lives. I mean, an awful lot of what's in that speech is mine. That's what's happened to me, and many, many women like me. And, and, and I consciously kind of misdirect it, you know, at Darnie, you know, who was a man and is a woman, pointing up our constant misconceptions and prejudices, because I suffer from those misconceptions and prejudices all the time, the same as any of us. But at least I ask myself questions, or I get up and go out and try and find out, you know, what it is I don't understand. And again, I think that's something that we can do in theatre. So I think Darnie brings a lot to the play in terms of gender. Actually, can I pick you up there uh, as an actual playwright, in a way, or more technically as a playwright? Because, yeah, because it seems to me there are two key speeches that come out of not in the character's best interest in an odd way. So that there's that one where, in fact, if Linda could only keep her mouth shut and get out of the door, she might be better off. But she cannot restrain herself, and in doing that opens up a whole new sequence, which I think is very interesting. And similarly, the confession itself, it's so beautifully set up that he, she, Linda asks Eddie to say it so they can finish, which undermines it as testimony. And when, yet, when he starts to speak you go, oh no, he is saying that. So it, it, were those things you were doing as a player deliberately just keep the whole thing off balance? Yeah, I suppose I do do that. I've been writing plays for about 20 years and I'll be really honest, like when I go in there and I go into that room and I go into these ideas and I start asking these questions, I don't necessarily know what I'm doing. I'm literally trying to find out. So the audience are kind of going on, on a similar journey to what I went on as a playwright. But also I like plays to be really live and dynamic and not all wrapped up. So that keeps the audience guessing, so that they're puzzling and working their way through it. Because that's life. Life is deeply complex, and nothing is black and white, and nobody's good or bad. There's good and bad in all of us. And that's why I very consciously kind of set Eddie up as an affable, fun kind of guy before I turn on him and, and show him exactly Well, I loved the way you did that with Linda. <laughs> I loved her outburst, because up until then, she'd been kind of the... One that was, you know, we were all laughing at inside, yes, and yeah. then so, and sort of thinking, oh, she's awful. And then next thing, she turns, and there's this absolute pain that's coming from within her, and the everyday sexism she's experienced all her life. I thought that was an incredible speech, and it really was unexpected. So I loved that, you know. Yeah. Even if it was misdirected at Darnie, the point was she was really expressing an anger that she'd obviously been yeah. holding down for a long time. No, I think it's a great dramatic thing when you hear some. You, they're doing it, but they, it's a. It, They've picked the wrong moment, so it's true, but it's mm -hmm. making things worse in that, in, in a sense. Um, in a moment, I'll come, I'll come around for questions for the audience, so if you, if you have anything you wish to ask until... It is kind of great having free legal, legal advice, actually, to, uh, to my <laughs> So I think everyone should have a legal expert, neither, because I keep saying things in rooms, and they're going, I don't know, I should check that with a lawyer. Um, it, on, on gender, um, I've been told somewhere that Ireland actually has some of the most liberal laws on gender uh, in Europe in that you can assign your own gender, I think, as of 2015. So where do we stand on gender identification and the law in Ireland at the moment? Yeah, we just passed the Gender Recognition Act in 2015, just after marriage equality um, referendum. So it was a huge year. And uh, the act, because we came to it late, most countries had started 
allowing legal or, or making legal provision for change of gender much earlier and so had, had to amend their laws as things changed and as, as, we realized, as we moved away from medical model towards a more social model around gender assignment. So but we were able to learn from all that experience because we'd come to it late and so our legislation is very, is very progressive. It's ahead of its, it was ahead of its time because we were able to draw on experience elsewhere. So it doesn't require, it's not a medical model. Um, there is a review going on of it though and one of the issues that, uh, that is being looked at I know is intersex, which was isn't isn't addressed at all in it, and also the issue of minors. At what age can can you uh, change? Can you start uh, change of gender and, and apply for change of gender before you're 18? It's different different provisions around that. Great, thanks very much for that. So, uh, yeah, no, great answer. Um, or at least uh, no, very interesting. No, it's you know. I've reached an age where my main information comes through my teenage children about these things. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting in terms of... Not, it's not so much not identifying. Not identifying such an interesting thing. Refusal to identify. So it's not so much an embrace of a certain gender. It's a refusal to play those binary games, which I, which I kind of find interesting at the moment. Yeah, we haven't got there, though, in our law yet. As I say, we don't oh, yeah. have intersex yeah. recognition. Yeah. Great. So do we have any questions this evening for our panel? A, micro, a microphone's coming your way. There you go. It's not so much a question, it's more an interpretation because um, I really enjoyed the play. And what I loved about it, it was like two parallel narratives. Um, you know, did she say it or did she not say it? So at the end of it, I wasn't really sure which, which was the true narrative, if she had confronted, um, you know, if she confronted him or not. So that was interesting that as a playwright, your interpretation is that that was the imagined narrative. That was the imagined narrative, yeah. So I, I mean, sure. certainly when I wrote it initially, I wrote it straight through, as in this happens, she gets a reckoning, she, you know, she, you know she, she hits him in the living room. And it took me a long time to get him to admit it. And, and he never really admits it because I think what he has done is he has, has reframed it as something else. It was never as violent as she said. It's not what you say it is. He never says, I raped you. He never, because he's never admitted it to himself. Therefore, he cannot admit it to her. And, and I can't, we went round the houses on it, didn't we, Gavin? I mean, there's always yeah. elements. I mean, that's a seven draft script. So I would have worked very closely with Jim Culleton, who's here tonight, who's the director, who did a brilliant job, and with uh, Gavin. And, and I, I, like, I really do love working with Jim and Gavin because uh, they kind of understand what makes me tick and understand the kind of questions I want to ask and don't want to answer. And uh, I think in particular, you know, with this one, when I finally got him to a point where, you know, he admitted it and she got her reckoning, there was something in me that kind of knew this doesn't reflect the reality. And then I began to hit on this kind of alternate, you know, sliding doors. Uh, so the setup is that, um, you know, that moment when they go out to have a look around the house, that's the moment when she plays it in her head, what would happen if she confronted him. And in the end of the day, it's her husband's response it's Ray's response that responds. I really that wanted to shake her. Ray, can I just say, or at least, or hit him, because yeah. he was just so disbelieving, and it was such a, I don't know, why didn't you tell me? Sort of, you know, and that was all he could think of was, why hadn't she told him? I thought anyone with a whit of sense would see that she was so, had been so traumatised she couldn't tell anyone. 
I know, but if that hasn't been his experience, yeah. you see, and and that's what you get. And actually, at every point, at, at, at a point in the play, even Darnie, her close ally, goes, "Why didn't you tell me?" Yeah. Because I mean, you you like reading those testimonies, you know, story after story after story. The people closest to the survivors are often the people who let them down. And, and it's not because they don't love them, but it's just that they are not equipped to cope with this trauma. And again, there's something in us as a society and a culture that have to come to grips with that. You know, and until we do and see ourselves in Ray and see ourselves in Linda and see ourselves in those characters, we're never gonna question ourselves or change. Thank you. Thanks very much for the observation. Yeah. <laughs> Another question. Yes, this way. Uh, just wait for the mic. Uh, good evening, and thank you again. Uh, I echo what everyone says. Excellent uh, play. Very powerful and very, very interesting. Uh, I'd like to ask you a bit of... I was very interested at the end of the play, the idea that she was, Linda was willing almost to do the deal that Linda had put up. Um, that, sorry, um, the, um, the, the lady, the wife, was willing to do the deal. Like, rather, just admit it you know, that you did it to me, and that's enough. That's what I want to hear. I want my memory validated. And that seemed to be like, I won't go to the prosecution, to the guards, if you're willing, just admit it to me here, and it stays in the room. Uh, is, is that because, i just like to ask you your thoughts on that, and is it because, as Ivana said earlier, the idea that the trial process, the, the whole legal process, is almost like doubly victimizing uh, victims of rape in particular, and that therefore, it was more a case of, I just need to hear you admit it to me here in the room, and that will satisfy me, rather than actually go to the, the guards. Yeah. And I should say the questioner is another barrister, so Indeed. you have more legal advice. <laughs> as, as a legal person, I'm just curious as to that aspect of it. Yeah, certainly that did, that, that, that absolutely played in my mind. You know, that um, it just, it just feels and continues to feel, despite the Me Too movement, despite the fact that we have kind of embraced feminism all over again, it still feels that in cases of rape and sexual assault, everything is stacked against the survivor. And I think it also came from this notion of how Ireland is shifting in such a positive way and taking a long, hard look at itself. And I was so acutely aware that a lot of the time, women or survivors just want acknowledgement because there's so because there is such a sense of disbelief and because the narrative is taken from them time and time again that they do doubt themselves and i think particularly the whole story of the magdalene uh, laundries and that apology in the doll and that and i think that's what's happening in this play is that sandra initially thinks maybe that will be just enough for me to get him to the point where he admits it but then she's not so sure, you know? Then maybe she'd take it to the next level. But when she sees the damage that it's doing to the people around her, she pulls back. And I think there's just been extraordinary articles out of the Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford about the psychology of that and about how a lot of the time, the people at the center, men and women, are so aware of the pain that this is going to cause to other family members or, you know, because it's often members of your family, close neighbors or whatever, 
that, that they decide to, to rescue everybody else from the pain and in a sense kind of sacrifice themselves. And that's a deep tragedy we have to face as a society as well. There's a, a film at the moment, uh, The Meeting, the Alan Gilson and film, which I is heard, about yeah. the um, Alva Griffith, I think, is the, the woman who, and she plays herself in it. And of course, her, that story is about uh, a rape case where the accused had, plea had pleaded guilty, been convicted, but she still didn't feel the clo closure as a survivor herself until she had met him and forced, and effectively not forced him, but, but that he had confronted, that she had been able to confront him and he had admitted it to her. And certainly the research we did, a lot of the uh, survivors or victims had been t who had gone through court processes were telling us it wasn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't anything really to do with the penalty or what type of conviction it was. It was about actually being believed and having a verdict that showed, that validated their experience. So there's a review, in fact, going on at the moment. Just to go back to the law for a minute. There's a, uh, the Minister for Justice is conducting a review of our, of our rape and sexual assault trial processes currently coming out of the Belfast trial to see if there's anything that uh, that can be anything further can be done to improve the process and to try and make it uh, less traumatic for our survivors to go through. So that's something that I think needs to be looked at: is how do you how do you ensure a, a better chance of feeling that you're being believed in the process? That's really crucial. Great, uh, thanks. Thanks very much. Uh, do we have another question? Yeah, come this way. Hey, Deirdre, congratulations. Really enjoyed it. Um, <clears throat> To what extent, as an audience member, it's very difficult to view this play as just a play, which I think is a compliment to the writing. It, you do, I think particularly because of all of the subject matters, you, you, you seem to view it um, as, you just see it through the lens of culture and, and politics that, that are so prevalent across the media at the, at the moment. Throughout the writing process and the seven drafts, to what extent was it important for you to allow everything you're seeing in the media influence what you're writing or was it important to block that out and just make sure that you're writing your play? I think I, I initially when, when I hit on this idea and decided I wanted to write in this world, I did spend a lot of time reading testimony, you know, looking at interviews, met people who had been personally affected by it. Um, and then I got in there and I set up a scenario and I imagined characters and I just ran with that. I couldn't say that I shut my ears to what was going on outside, but we had numerous conversations where we went, wow, that has just really validated all, all my impulses. And I suppose it is a play first and foremost. I didn't know that it was gonna open in the midst of the Kavanaugh controversy, do you know? Um, but the, the, the tragic truth is that this is always relevant. It's been relevant since the dawn of time, and it will stay relevant until things change, not only judicially, but I think culturally and socially. And uh, we just all need to look at the way we react and respond. And I suppose, again, that was something I found out as I was writing it. It's about how we all respond to these you know, deep traumas. Um, um, yeah. Right. I'm starting to get a, a wave for, from the side, so we're wrapping up for the evening, but just a couple of few minutes uh, left. Yeah, I think, Deirdre, um, the, I think, I mean, the, the old image of theatre used to be that it held the mirror up to the audience, so that it would like a mirror holding it up to the back to the audience. But that doesn't seem active enough these days. Some of the best work we've seen 
uh, I hope including Narthman's Road, is really an audience wrestling with something, a real sense that the people in the room are wrestling with these things along with the people on the stage. Uh, to give a plug for the Abbey itself, the uh, asking for it, uh, if anyone hasn't seen that yet, it was done in Cork, Everyman, Landmark, that's coming here. It, you, you'd want to see that as well. And there's a, you know, a range of works that are really wrestling with these things right now. Um, and giving your work in spinning and with us and elsewhere, is that a fair thing that you're trying to do? You're trying to get the audience to wrestle with these things rather than say, look, this is an image of what I think this is. Oh, absolutely. I don't think theatre is a passive occupation at all. I think that it's very dynamic, it's very live. It doesn't come to life until you, the audience, sit in front of it. None of us know it works until you, the audience, engage in it. And I suppose for me, every part of it, like every word has got to earn its place as it does in a poem. And every word is active and shifting it or moving it, you know, towards some catharsis. And the audience have to be a part of that. And I suppose, like, my education in theatre is purely as a member of the audience. You know, I, I, I didn't study it. I didn't go to drama school. You know, I kind of came at it just by loving it, by going to see plays all the time. And I really felt that theatre kind of shaped me as a person and shaped my view of the world. And I, I feel it should well for me it is unashamedly political because i think once you stand up and write something and pose a question you're being political and and by being a part of it as a member of the audience i think you're entering into the politics of that and whilst i love comedy and you know i can write it you can see a little bit of it early on there and and i've done it and and sometimes satire is a really strong way to challenge issues and, um, you know, I also think that audiences like to be challenged. And even when it is a rocky ride or it's deeply uncomfortable or it, it, it tosses them about a bit, I think that they'll kind of stay with you if, if you give them someone to love or somebody they'll recognize. So I suppose that I've learned that writing for years and working with brilliant, brilliant people and seeing brilliant plays. Um, yeah, I kind of love the theatre. Yeah, you have to have the really good dialogue you had, though, to keep us engaged. I mean, one of the things I thought was so strong about the play was that we were right in there, in the action with the characters and part of it. And it was really very engaging, very powerful, but not just to w feeling we were watching it, feeling like you're really involved in it. So it was great. great. I'll give you a two-part question for our guest for tonight, Ivana Patrick, to finish us off with. Uh, part one, Deirdre mentioned politics. Now, it's great to see you here. Uh, Fishamble actually do have a track record of engaging with actual politicians, elected politicians with our drama. Uh, so apart from any presidential candidates you might happen to know, um, <laughs> do, do politicians take play seriously? So a serious question. When you're, when you're away from here, do politicians ever mention drama at all, or is it off? Uh, and the second part, a little bit of optimism for the future, please. You started that way uh, with the way you see students now and informed consent and a more healthy and open attitude. Uh, so what optimistic thoughts do you have uh, for the future uh, where we can move from a position where sometimes, sometimes it feels like we're stuck? Okay, well, first of all, yes, politicians do take plays seriously, or at least some politicians. And I think our uh, leading presidential candidate, if I may say, Michael D, of course, is a huge fan of theatre himself. I mean, Sabina herself as, a, as an actor, as a, in very involved in the Focus Theatre Company. So, uh, so there's a politician who takes plays very seriously and who I hope is re-elected tomorrow. Now I've given him the plug. Um, 
uh, on a positive note, um, yeah, I, I do think things are changing. But I, and I think Deirdre's quite right, of course. The, you know, change in the way in which we prosecute and try rape is, you know, that, that's only really the, the symptoms, the real causes of the problems, the real issues underlying how difficult it is to prosecute sexual offences is cultural attitudes to sex, cultural attitudes that, um, that don't understand about consent and, and, you know, that teach boys and girls very different things about sex from an early age. So I think we're only, we're only really changing that now with uh, better sexuality education programmes in schools. But we are changing it. So I, and I do think, you know, Ireland has changed hugely and Repeal the Eighth was just the massive example of that this summer. It was wonderful. So I think that's the positive note I would end on, Gavin, is that I think it is changing. And atti but attitudes take a while to shift. So, But plays like this help to challenge us. OK, so first of all, thank you very much for staying thank this you. evening. Uh, Fish Amble will have more work on later in the year with Pat Kinnevan's new work before uh, touring Ireland. Uh, there is plenty of work to be seen here in the Peacock and the uh, main stage of the Abbey. But just for now, to thank Ivana Bacic and Deirdre Kinnan. Thank you very much. Thank you.